you know, as I was singing that, I was thinking, man, I, I have so much going on up here. I don't know if you guys relate with that at all. But I can get my mind wrapped around, I, I need you more. So I, I think uh, as we begin uh, to jump into God's word today, I think that's kind of the umbrella that everything falls under, that we need God a great deal. And, and not just we need him more than other things, we need him more than all things combined. Without him, we have no clear direction, we have no clarity in what's happening in our life, in our world. You follow me? Usually you say amen, yeah. Yeah. Well, good morning. Thank you for uh, your uh, lack of mean words about the football game that happened. That's where I'm just going to leave it right there, and then we're going to move on. <laughs> hey, well, it's good to be with you. I see some new faces. Uh, I am so glad that you chose to worship with us. My name is uh, Andy, and from time to time, I get to bring you God's Word on a Sunday morning. I'm very excited about it. If you're new with us, we've been in this sermon series called The Way Forward. We've been going chapter by chapter through the book of Exodus. How many of you are enjoying Exodus? Of all the books in the Bible, I find Exodus to be the easiest one for me to kind of read myself into the story because so often in my own life, I, I have this experience. It's a roller coaster. It's God comes through and something amazing happens and you're like, yes, I will never forget that. And then you fall asleep and you wake up the next day and you've forgotten a little bit. And it's part of the human condition that we experience God's faithfulness and his redemptive power and he brings us through things and then we forget and I feel like as we're reading through the book of Exodus, I think the great temptation is to go like this. You idiots, why do you keep forgetting? <laughs> but the, the proper response is, man, that's kind of like me. And I am so grateful that God doesn't watch them blow at one time and say, forget it. I'm over you people. Instead, God says, no, I have an everlasting covenant with you. I will see you through every up and every down. Yes, there's consequences for your actions, but I will see you through every up and every down. This morning, we're going to see that literally in one single chapter. We're going to see an extreme up and an extreme down, and we're going to see God come through over and over again. So I'm excited for, for, for this. If you're uh, taking notes, you can just write this down. This is kind of the foundation that this morning's sermon is built on. The first story that we're going to get, we're going to have two stories this morning. They're both kind of a bite size. I think we can really chew on them well this morning. The first one is about a confrontation that arises from within the people of Israel. It's this story that gives us a glimpse into what happens when the people who are God's people start to grumble and have an issue from within. What is the best way to respond to that? And then the very next story is a story about a confrontation and a conflict that comes from without. Something totally unexpected. Something just shows up and wreaks havoc on God's people. And how are God's people to, to respond to a conflict that comes unexpectedly? So this morning we're in uh, Exodus chapter 17. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to, to open it up there. We're just going to start in, in verse 1. We're going to make our way through. If you don't have a Bible, no problem. Uh, we have it on the screens. Also, uh, we live in the Internet age, so you can use a cell phone. And there's no football going on today, so I know you're not checking fantasy football, so that's cool. <laughs> Chapter 17, verse 1, starts this way. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at this place called Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses, and they said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. 
And the people grumbled against Moses and they said, why on earth did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. Now, right from the very start in chapter 17, we have this huge irony. And here's the irony. These people, they've been traveling in rugged, hot terrain. This is not an easy hike through the woods. This is a rough place. And we have to remember, this is not just a small handful of people who are are well-trained. They've been backpacking through the woods for a long time. These are people who have been broken down bodily by slavery in Egypt. These are the elderly. These are newborn babies. This is livestock. This is a slow-moving caravan of people, and they are exhausted. And what would you know? God leads them to this place. We're going to this place, Moses tells them. It's called Rephidim. Rephidim in Hebrew means the place of rest. Doesn't that sound nice? I just imagine uh, my dad coming home from a long, long day of work and without even saying anything, going you know, to the fridge for his favorite beverage, walking right over to the Lazy Boy and pulling that lever, you know? You know the moment when you pull the lever on a Lazy Boy and it's like, This is what I'm picturing because you're going to Rephidim, the place of great rest. But when they get there, they find out that there is a problem. The problem is that there is no water. Now, we're talking about the desert here. We're talking about a huge group of vulnerable, vulnerable people. Without water, these people will die very quickly. As I was um, studying this week and I was thinking and praying, I, I was reminded of this uh, old chart that I think is in basically like every single intro to psychology book that you could buy. And I, I actually have a slide of it, it's, uh, if we could put that up. It's called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Have you guys seen this before? Here's what Maslow said. Basically, human beings have these needs. And until those specific needs are met, we don't really worry about the next set of needs. So let me tell you the the number one need. I don't even think he put it up here. The number one need for human beings, are you ready for this? Air. (laughs) Have you ever seen what happens when somebody is, is held underwater? You guys ever seen this? I was watching this Navy SEAL documentary a while back, and they were talking about, you know, intentionally holding people underwater to see if they can, you know, survive and they can uh, think clearly. And you know what happens when you hold people underwater? You will punch your best friend right square in the face. (laughs) You will. Because your number one need is air. Very quickly after air is water. This is a deep need. And so when we read this story, what I don't want us to think is these are just complaining whiny people. Nothing is ever good enough for them. These are people who are saying, without water, Moses, this camping trip is doomed. And they kind of take it to another level. We can take that that slide down for now. In the, the scripture, the word that my version, the ESV, uses is that they quarrel with Moses. Kind of a a better word is, it's this insinuation that they have like this this agitated, contentious arguing. They're arguing with him. And this is what Moses says to them. He says, why do you argue with me? This is how the story is playing out. It's not Moses who has led them to Rephidim. It's God who has told Moses to lead them to Rephidim. And there's a big difference. Moses says this camping spot was chosen by God. It's not my business to tell God where we camp and where we don't. And so he says this, why do you test the Lord? 
Now, this is a, a pretty interesting question. And if we just read chapter 17, we might think, like, he's, he's getting upset with them. He's getting frustrated with them. And I think in some way he is, but I think even bigger than that, what he's doing is, is trying to tell them, why are we doing this again? Why are we re- revisiting the same problem that you continue to have? Let me, let me read you a laundry list of some of the things that have happened in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapters 7 through 12. The Israelites watch God miraculously take them out of Egypt through the stuff called the ten plagues. Have you heard of that? They all watch it happen. They watch the blood be smeared on the doorpost. They watch the angels spare their children. Then they go out into the desert, chapter 14. They're camping in a spot that they think is a terrible camping spot. It's on low ground, and they look up on the horizon, and they see the military of Egypt is on its way to come slaughter them and take them back captive. You remember the story? And they start screaming out, oh, no, what are we going to do? And Moses, he raises his staff, and these same people walk across the Red Sea on dry ground. Chapter 15, they're complaining about the water. Why? Because they decide the water is too bitter. We don't like it. You guys remember this story? And the water is made sweet. These are the same people that in chapter 16, one chapter earlier, they're having this complaint. We're hungry. You guys remember this? And God sends them quail and sends them manna. One chapter earlier, And what we're reading right now, people are holding manna in their hand, and I don't know what they did with it, but they're like, cheers, manna forever, this is awesome, right? And they're eating it. One chapter earlier, and now what they're doing is they're forgetting that God provides. And so Moses asked them this question, why do you continue to test the Lord? You think God was like, oh my gosh, thank you for reminding me, I totally forgot there was no water source here. So I think there's a, a contrast going on here. And I, I actually, um, I was on the ball this week. I decided I'd, I'd get ahead. And so I actually made some slides. If you're taking notes, you can see some of my takeaways. My, my first question that I have for myself and I think uh, extended to you is this. In times of trouble, we can put that up, Joel, if we have it. In times of trouble and confusion, do you expect the worst or do you anticipate that God will move? I was thinking about this, because how many of you sometimes, if you had to admit it, you expect the worst to happen? Anybody? And I was thinking, what happens to me when I expect the worst? This is some of the things. I often blame others. Anybody else? So these people, they come to a camping spot. There's no water. Oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? Blame Moses. It's his problem. He did this. Right? And then it it kind of exponentially blows up to the point where they're like, you just want us to die out here, Moses, and you want to kill sweet, baby, innocent lambs that we brought with us, too. It's your fault. So they blame everyone. I think when we expect the worst, what we do is we put our trust in people to give us quick, quick solutions to our problems. Anybody ever have a situation where you agree to a quick solution and it ends up not being a solution at all? I think this is a, a moment of vulnerability where, where con artists like to prey on people, where they're looking for direction. And so this is also a time where we're often conned into believing something that's not true. Or do we anticipate that God will move? When we anticipate that God will move, we act an awful lot like Moses. I want you to notice what Moses does. Moses has all this vitriol and hate kind of cast his way. 
He says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted with water. They grumbled against Moses. Why did you bring us out of here? We're all going to die. And then verse 4, it says this. So Moses cried out to the Lord. Moses doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know what he's supposed to do. But you know what he chooses to do? He chooses to not respond with some cheap trick or easy solution. He decides, I'm going to pull away and I'm going to cry out to God because I know I don't have the solution. I can't create water from nothing. And it says he cries out to God and he asks him very honestly, what should I do with them? They've seen all the stuff that I already listed for you. And now they're ready to kill me. So when we anticipate that God will and can move on our behalf, what we often do is we find ourselves withdrawing, praying honestly before God, God, I don't know what's going to happen, but I trust that you will lead me along the way. The story continues in uh, verse 5. Very famous story. Many of you know it. It goes like this. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Let's pause right here at verse 5 for a second. Think about what's happening. Tens, hundreds of thousands of people really dislike you in this moment. Is this not the ultimate walk of shame? You seeing this? God says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to walk before them. Pass them by. I don't know if that means like walk down an aisle that they're creating as they're sneering at you or throwing things at you or what. Walk before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, some of the trusted people, the voices that all of these people actually listen to and respect. Take some of them with you and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I love this. I want you to think for a second about this staff. You know, we have this phrase in English where we say, if the walls could talk. You know that phrase? If this staff could talk. This is the same staff that Moses held when he encountered the burning bush and God told him to go. This is the same staff, I got to imagine, he was putting a lot of his shaky body weight on when the doors opened before the throne of Pharaoh. And he walked in and said, hey, uh, I know you're not going to believe this, but um, our God says you got to let us all go. This is the staff that he held in his hands as the Egyptians were pursuing them very violently. And God said, hold the staff up. This is the staff that he threw on the ground and became a serpent. This is a comfortable, comforting object for Moses. So God says, take the thing in your hand, the thing that when you hold it, it reminds you of all the things I have done in and through you. Take some of the people that these people who hate you respect and will listen to you, and I have instructions for you from there. Verse 6 says this. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. If you're taking notes, you can underlight that. In sight of the elders of Israel. So this is not something that happens before all hundreds of thousands of Israelites. This is something that these elders are going to have to go back and tell people. You're telling me that he took a staff and hit a rock. Anybody else ever seen water just come flowing out of a rock before? If somebody ran in here right now and said, you won't believe it, I just hit that wall and water is coming out. Raise your hand if you would believe that. Yeah, this is, this is an absurd story. Now these guys are going to say, I don't know how to explain it to you. 
I, I really don't. He took a staff, he hit a rock, and now all you thirsty, whiny, complaining people get to drink. So do you want water or not? That's how the story goes. So he did so in the sight of the elders, and he called uh, the name of the place Masa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? I want to kind of go on a little bit of a rabbit trail, if that's okay with you. I find it interesting that Moses names this place two different things. You guys notice that? It says that he names the singular place two names, Masa and Meribah. And so I thought there's got to be something here. I've been reading the Bible a long time. I can't remember one single thing about Hebrew, so I have the internet like you. So I just decided I'm going to look it up. This is what these names mean. Masa in Hebrew means it's the place of a testing or trial. Some uh, Jewish scholars call it the proving ground. This is the place where God proved that he was present when they doubted. But he also names it Meribah. And Meribah in Hebrew is a place of strife or contention. Now, when these people are going to crisscross the wilderness for 40 years, they're going to come back to places like this. And what name do you think they're going to call this? It depends. How many of you ever read the comments on like YouTube videos or you're on Twitter? Anybody in the world in here? You guys ever read the comments? Are you guys all familiar with the term trolling? You guys familiar with that? It's like when somebody just decides, I'm going to go on the internet, and I'm just going to let somebody have it with an anonymous name, and I'm going to be sarcastic and mean and funny, and it's going to cause a scene. You guys know what I'm talking about. I feel like this is Moses' version of trolling these people. (laughs) I'm going to name it after what you guys did, which is think that God won't show up and won't do anything. So I'm going to call it, for your sake, you can call it the place of strife, in the place of contention, in the place of arguing and quarreling. You could call it that because that's what you deserve to call it. I'm going to call it Masa, the place where God showed up and proved himself. And when we come back here, whether you believed where the water came from or not is, is going to determine what you call this place. So I was thinking, this is such a cool story, but I, I often hesitate to go like super deep into history without asking, like, well, what does it mean for us? And I was thinking about this because I I think when we look back on places and times in our life, whether it's a a physical place or a place of um, great pain or suffering or joy or celebration or whatever it is, we call it a name. We call those places sometimes. Sometimes I do it like this, like, oh, that was a season of a lot of testing. You guys know what I'm talking about. And I think what's presented to us in Exodus 17 is an opportunity to say, what will you call that? Will you call it primarily a place where it's identified with your actions and your doubt and your lack of faith? Or will you call it a place of God as the primary actor that God showed up? So do we have that question that already go up on the screen? You could write this down. What do we name the pivotal places God has taken you in your life? What do we call those things? How do we frame them? How do we remember them? When we look back, do we just think about the pain and the suffering, or do we see God in the midst of the pain and the suffering? Now, we're going to take this story. This is the story of what happens when conflict arises from within the people of Israel. And the story shifts gears, and 
now these people are, you know, they're kind of sighing a sigh of relief because on that Maslow, you know, pyramid hierarchy, they now have air and they have water. They got manna, they got quail, they're doing pretty good. So they can pull the lazy boy lever, they can put their feet up, they can enjoy, and they take a deep breath. But then verse 8 happens. And I don't know how much time is between verse 7 and verse 8, but I, I have a feeling that the person who wrote this story wants you to know not long. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. That stinks. The resting place that has no water is now the place of the first armed conflict in the Bible for these people, the Israelites. Now remember who these people are. They came out of Egypt. The weapons that they have are the weapons they took from Egypt. They are not well trained. They have not had time to kind of gather themselves, figure out like what's our hierarchy of who's in charge and who's going to be a commander and who's going to do what. They're just like a ragtag group of people trying to figure out how to get water one second and now all of a sudden they're being attacked by a group of people. You can probably see in the, the root word there. This is the father of what we come to know as the Amalekites. This is a, a, a roving, violent, warrior people. These people are bandits. These people ambush you on the road and steal everything of value. These are people who seek out violence. And it says, they took a deep breath, they sat in their lazy boy, and then they got attacked by a roving group of bandits at a place called Rephidim that's supposed to be a resting place completely and totally out of nowhere. I, I love the Bible because you can type these sorts of things into the internet. Or if you've memorized the Old Testament like me, um, is what I meant to say. <laughs> it turns out that there's other places in the Old Testament that kind of elaborate on some of these stories. In the book of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25, we actually get insight into what happened in this attack. Let me read it for you. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. So this is Deuteronomy giving you more commentary on this exact event. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary. Well, yeah, they didn't drink any water. And he cut off your tail, those of you who are lagging behind you, and he did not fear. Let's pause there for a second. Who lags behind in a big, long convoy of people? So this is what this guy does. He intentionally goes behind and seeks out the weakest links. And when it says that he destroys them, you guys all know what that means. So he hits them where it hurts. Totally unjust, totally unexpected. It's unprovoked. It's a, a cowardly, unjust attack. And, and Deuteronomy goes on and says this. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, that's a, you can laugh right there because if you know the story, it's going to be a few hundred years before that happens. In the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So this is not just like, oh, this guy showed up and attacked. This is like he brought all of his men and he hit them where it hurt and he was intending to do it to everyone. Make sure I'm in the right place here. <clears throat> so we have this roller coaster ride that just continues. How many of you ever feel like you're on kind of a roller coaster ride in life? Everybody with a toddler said amen to that. <laughs> no water. Why are we here? Water. Sigh of relief. Getting attacked by people. We don't even know about them yet, but they're dangerous. And it just continues up and down and up and down and up and down. I love this because there's a piece of me that feels like, man, I am up and down and up and down. And I love to see how God intervenes. 
Verse 9, let me flip my page here. Verse 9 says this, Then Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on top of the hill. Now this is my favorite part of the whole scripture this morning. I want, I want you to hear this. I, I think this is amazing. I had no idea. This is the very first time in the entire scriptures that we ever hear the name Joshua. If you're just reading from Genesis 1 and you're just reading the whole Bible, you've never heard of this guy before. Anybody else think that's a little odd? Seems how there's a whole book called Joshua and he becomes the pivotal figure after Moses. This is the first time. And I love how we get introduced to, to Joshua. This is how it works. Then Moses said to Joshua, what do we know about him? Nothing. Choose for us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. And he does. Now what does this tell us about Joshua? It doesn't say, then Moses said, bring me the records. I want to know who went to a prestigious military academy. Nope. He doesn't say, hey, do we have anyone among us who may be trained in Egypt and knows a thing or two about combat? Nope. Something about Joshua that Moses knows is that when he asks him, he will say yes. The only thing I can conclude is this, that Joshua is someone who can recall what God has already done. He knows what God has done, and he rests on what God has done. You know why? Because on paper, this is a very stupid decision. If you just thought, hey, let's just make a, a, two columns, pros and cons of going out and fighting some professional warrior people with a ragtag group of Egyptian escapees, there wouldn't be a whole lot of pros. I think, if I'm honest, my reaction would be like, um, let's run. Right? What are, what are our choices? Instead, he turns to Joshua and says, go out and attack them. Find some men and go attack them. And he does it. And we're going to find out Joshua's character, one of the things that Joshua does, Joshua is always the guy who remembers. In fact, when they come into the promised land, do you remember what happens? They cross the river, and before he lets them like, go settle it, he gathers them all together. And what does he do? He tells them, let's tell some stories Let's remember who God is. From the very beginning, we see this in a young man named Joshua, that he knows that God is faithful, that he can go fight with Amalek. Why? Because no matter what happens, it's in God's control, and he would rather trust God than trust himself. I have a question that I wrote down here. It's, how do we react when we're called to do things that seem way out of our league? You've ever been asked... To do something where you're like, whoa, I think you got the wrong guy or you got the wrong gal. I'm not qualified for that. I think as I continue to read through Exodus, I think that when we say, no, no, that's not for me, what we're really saying is that I'm depending on my own strength and ability, and I know I can't do that. But when God calls us into something that's out of our league and we say, yes, what we're really saying is, I can't do that, but I know that God can it's a subtle difference, but it changes everything. The story continues in verse 11. When, whenever Moses held up his hand, okay, so now Moses is up on the hill. By the way, this hill that he's at, Horeb, uh, scholars believe pretty much unanimously that Horeb is at the base of Mount Sinai. So this is where Moses is going to get the Ten Commandments. This is the mountain of God, and God is already introducing him to this place. He says, go up there. So whenever Moses held up his hand, and what's in his hand? 
The staff. This staff has been held up before, hasn't it? Staffs could talk. Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. How many of you would be tempted or... Does this have... Oh, whoa, 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 yeah, it is. That is what's happening here, right? Sometimes I do that like on the soundboard. Like, is it, is it? I don't know. The best thing to do, extreme. All the way down, all the way... Yep, that's the one, right? So Moses holding up the staff. I, I got to tell you, I, I was thinking, you know what? It would be kind of fun and funny to figure out how long I could hold my hands up with the staff. Um, and I didn't have a staff. I was just pacing in my bathroom, muttering to myself um, in the mirror, kind of talking through some of this. And so I put my hands above my head, and I realized, you know what? You would be really ashamed and embarrassed if you told people how, how short of a time period you can keep your hands above your head. It's harder than you think. Moses' hands grew weary. So they, being his friends, or his brother Aaron and his friend Hur, which we don't really know a ton about Hur, they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up both of his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. They get it. They get There's a lot at stake here. We got to keep this guy's hands up. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Is that a cool story or what? I was, I was thinking a bit through this, and, you know, so often the, the simple, straightforward things in the Bible are, are the most interesting, they're the most profound. It turns out that in Jewish culture, well, I'll, I'll let you guess. Are you ready for this? I'll let you guess. In Jewish culture, especially ancient Jewish culture, when you want to be like in full-blown prayer mode, when you want to just say, I surrender everything in my entire life to you, God, what posture do you think they take? Hands up. Sort of like many people worship while we're singing worship songs. It's this posture of, I'm very, very defenseless. It's the posture, frankly, of when one military comes and people want to surrender, they wave a white flag, and what do you do? Hands up, right? Somebody with their hands up is not a very dangerous person, right? Unless you're one of those creepy dudes from Power Rangers that just dance around and then they ninja kick you. The putty. <laughs> I was thinking about them. What Moses is doing is he's taking this posture of prayer. It's this sold-out prayer that no matter how tired my body gets, I will not stop in my prayer and worship of you, God. Why? Because Moses knows who the people are fighting down there. He knows based on training and experience, these guys have no chance. The only chance they have is if God delivers. (laughs) Two for two. The last time I was up here, this happened too. See you, buddy. (laughs) So Moses is full-blown in prayer and worship, and as long as he's worshiping God, as long as, as kind of the mouthpiece of Israel has his focus on the only way we win this battle is on you, God, they win. When he brings his hands down in kind of this, this illustration of somehow we don't have to worship, they start to lose. So here's the idea. The idea is that it's counterintuitive, but the Bible from Genesis chapter 1 all the way till the end of Revelation says this, that when you pray and worship, battles are being fought and battles are won. So often we want to jump immediately into action and say, what can I do? What can I put in place to to win this battle? 
when the first thing that we should always do is pause, as Moses already showed us in the first story, to take a deep breath, to consult God, to worship him, to remember what God has done, and so many victories are won, either simply by that or with that being your first step. The second thing that I, I wrote down that I think is really important, you notice who Moses took with him. He took two people. He doesn't surround himself with a whole bunch of people. Anybody ever have a, a conflict or you, you have an issue going on in your life and you surround yourself with too many people? What happens? You start to get too many opinions, right? You, maybe you're sitting with coffee and someone's saying, I would totally do this. This would be the best thing to do. And you're like, okay, awesome. Then you go home and you get on the phone. They're like, no, that's a super dumb idea. Don't do that. This, this, and this will happen. And then you're like, oh my gosh, well, I'm going to talk. And all of a sudden, all these opinions start flying, right? Moses knows. Moses takes two people. I want you to notice something if you have your Bible open. These two people don't speak. They remain quiet. They know that Moses knows what to do. And when Moses grows weary, when he grows tired, do you know what they do? They just help him. That's it. They know that he's doing the right thing. They, don't, they know he, he doesn't need their input. So they help him raise his hand. So here's my question for you. Who do you surround yourself with and trust when things go wrong? Who are you surrounding yourself with? I think some of those voices are maybe more powerful than we would like to think. I think sometimes in the big monumental decisions, inviting a small group of people to pray and, and consult with you is plenty. Opening it up to too many voices, all of a sudden, you just start to get so much chatter and you don't have any direction. So who do you surround yourself with? I think sometimes the people we surround ourselves with dictate the outcome way more than we would like to acknowledge. The story ends this morning like this. Then the Lord said to Moses, I love this, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar, and he called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is like a, a, a biblical chapter of firsts. This is the very first time that the voice of God literally tells somebody in the Bible that you should write this one down. This is a group of people that have a long history of oral tradition. They're storytelling people. They pass on stories from generation to generation. It's what they do. But God says, listen, for this one, I want you to make sure no matter what that this one gets written down. Isn't that cool? He says, write this as a memorial. A memorial is a memory, a very important memory. In a book, and listen to the instructions. Recite it in the ears of Joshua. Now, I don't want us to miss this. Joshua is going to rise to prominence, and it's going to take decades. These people are going to wander in the desert for decades, and when Moses passes away, the torch is going to be passed to Joshua. Notice what God is doing. God is already decades in advance preparing Joshua to not forget the things he's seen. Is that amazing or what? We get this impression that Joshua is a relatively young man. 
Moses, the, the mouthpiece, the leader of this entire nation, is told, I want you to write it down. Maybe it's in a letter form, but I want you to make sure that Joshua doesn't forget. God is already thinking ahead of raising up a leader. Not 10 days before the big stuff happens, not even a year, but decades into Joshua. So recite it in the ears of Joshua. And then Moses built an altar, and he called the name of it, The Lord is my banner. This is Yahweh Nissi. A, a banner is a unifying symbol. I think you guys know what I mean. People march and protest with banners, and the people who go behind the banner, it's whatever that ideology is, is what we're following. Sometimes it's a, a victory banner. Sometimes it's a phrase, and this is what Moses is saying. He's saying the banner that we fly, the banner that we walk behind, is that God is the banner. We are unified. We have solidarity with one another because we follow God together. God leads us. That's what we're unified under. The last thing I want you to notice this morning is this, is that Moses built an altar. After all these things happen, Moses decides what we should do is not sigh relief. We shouldn't say, you know what, take a, take a seven-day break, go on vacation with your family. Just This is what he says. Let's worship God together. This sounds so sweet and wonderful, and I, I believe it is, but I also believe that there's a temptation throughout the whole Bible to do this. It's to pretend that we are Moses. I don't think the Bible is inviting us to think that we are Moses. I think the Bible is inviting us to realize we are very much like the, these people. We are on a roller coaster ride. We are maturing, and God is bringing us through, but sometimes we forget. I was thinking about it, and I, I guess I would put it this way. I, I think there's a piece of me that would say, when all of that is done, I'm going to worship. But if I were Moses, I would also want the people to sort of know I told you so. Right? Anybody else relate with me? I'm just trying to be honest. Like, there's a little piece of me, like, if I was Moses, you guys, why are you complaining? God led us here. It's going to be, oh, you're going to stone me to death. You're going to stone me to death because there's no water. God, you got to do something about these people. They're not listening, right? They're constantly doing this, and they're getting on, on Moses' nerves, or else that's how I would be. And so finally, God brings them through, and let's have a worship before we get started. I need to tell you, morons, that I told you so. That's what I, I think deep down. That's kind of the heart... But this is, what God, this is what Moses says. He doesn't take an opportunity like that because he's, he's a mature, refined leader. He's a mature, refined leader in the sense that when he goes into something important, he brings two people because he knows this is what I need. And he trusts that God will see him through. He, he trusts it. And he trusts that even in this moment, no matter what feelings I have, this is an opportunity to unify the people back together. Even if they forget tomorrow, right this second is time to remember. So here's what he does. He sets up an altar and he says, God is our banner. We will worship that God is our banner, that we walk behind God's leading, even when it makes, doesn't make sense. And they worship there. So I just want to end with one final question before we wrap up. I think this is a, a question that has to do with Moses here in this story. When victory comes, do we just sigh and relax because it's over? Or do we write it down, recite it, and worship? I think, if I'm honest, sometimes we pose these questions as either yes or no. But if, if you're like me, which I, I, it sounds like from the nodding and the hand raising throughout the service that many of you are, I, I, I think 
It's a mixed bag. Sometimes it's a yes, and sometimes it's a no. And I think the journey that God is taking these people on and the journey that God is taking us on is that as we mature, as we are disciplined in following the Lord, that slowly over time, our response becomes more and more and more yes. It becomes that over time. So I want to I tell you, if anything that I, I've said is convicting, let it be convicting, but don't be discouraged. When you submit yourself to God as your banner and, and he leads you, you will grow and grow and grow into saying, you know what, I've been through a lot. My choice is to worship God. So I want to wrap up this morning. If you're taking notes, this is the, the kind of the final thought. We have two stories this morning. And I think if we, we boil them down and we think about them, they make sense to every one of us. Every one of us has experienced what happens when conflict and turmoil arises from within. Maybe it's within a friendship or even your, your family unit at home. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's an organization that you're part of and conflict starts to come from within. My final thought for you is this, is that when confrontation comes from within, do you withdraw to consult and talk with God? That's the easy takeaway. When conflict that hits you right where you're at comes, here is the response that God has for you. Take a deep breath. Don't react. Don't settle for a cheapy solution. Take a deep breath. Consult with God. I got to tell you firsthand, people will say, what are you wasting your time for? You got to make a decision. It's worth it. That's what God calls us to do. When we react to conflict poorly, it reflects on God in some ways in the world we live in. We are people who are to pause, to pray, to consult the scripture, to consult brothers and sisters and say, this is the way forward. The second thing I want to leave from you is the second story we read today is conflict from without. Without being, this is conflict that just shows up. We had nothing to do with it. We were just going around along our, our merry way and all of a sudden Amalek shows up and just starts slaughtering people at the back of the line. It's an unprovoked attack. When you experience an unprovoked attack, maybe it's somebody at your workplace just saying things about you that are blatantly untrue. Maybe it's a family member who's rubbed wrong by you or how you respond, and so they go on a rampage to tell the whole family how terrible you are. Some nervous laughter, I think, that maybe hits home for some people. It's unprovoked. It shows that maybe it's an unprovoked spiritual attack where you're just like on cloud nine, and all of a sudden you just feel like the dampening and the wet blanket in the, the room, and you're like, I don't know what's going on. Do you trust that worship is an essential tool to win the battle? Is worship, is prayer, is it a tool in your belt? Is it a weapon to fight back? Those are two very simple questions. I hope if you take nothing else with you today that these two are, are things that you can take and, and mull over. I want to uh, pray for us as we dismiss. And uh, when I say amen, just stay seated because I have some instructions about lunch. But I want to just uh, pray over us, and I want to let you know that we're going to transition. We're going to have a lot of fun uh, eating together and having fellowship together. But I want to tell you, if, if you have something heavy on your heart, and you just need someone to talk to or need somebody to, to pray with you, please, please just come. You don't ever have to feel awkward or strange about just approaching someone at Bridge Community Church. We would love to do that with you. So let me pray. God, thank you. Thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet. Thank you that we can hold it up in a, a dark world and see things clearly. 
Would you help us to cling to it? Would you help us to call to mind all the ways that you have been faithful in our lives, even if it's in a place of confusion right now? We want to grow closer to you. We want to become more and more like your son Jesus every day. God, would you help us in the areas where we're weak, where we jump into quick, cheap solutions? Would your spirit convict us in those moments to pause, to pray, to worship as our tool to fight back? We love you. We ask that you would go before us into a wonderful celebration in time. We pray that you would forge new friendships and build on the ones that are already existing. Would you bless this food to our bodies? Amen. Amen. Okay, so um, let me see. Is it 1121? I can't really see on that clock there. Yeah. Um, Okay, so my understanding is that lunch is pretty much getting ready right this second. It should be ready any, any minute. So if you exit through here and go out the doors to the walkway, there are two different taco stations. I think everything will be pretty as uh, self-explanatory once you see it. But we want to let you know there are a handful of uh, round tables that have chairs around them. We would like to do our best to reserve the, those tables for those who are in need of, of really sitting down. Um, I think around here we call that older adults. Um, so we want to let you know that. Please reserve those. Please don't uh, gobble up. There's lots of high tables. There's lots of seating around the planter boxes and on the boxes out there. We're going to have some music. If you didn't already know, there are some cards for uh, Pastor Danny and Rochelle and the Kuramays in the lobby. You can jot down a note just thanking them for all that they've done um, for our church. Um, and you can drop them in the basket. We'll make sure that gets where they are. Um, with that, I do want to dismiss us, but uh, maybe we can just act like adults and kind of trickle out at a, a reasonable rate so we don't just overwhelm our, our wonderful taco people. Uh, please, 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 please be polite. Please be kind to those who are serving us. Um, let's just treat them as part of our Bridge family today and have a wonderful time. Thank you guys for coming. And if you would like some tacos, they're right out that way. So blessings to you. Still be my vision, oh.